Hello, everybody. Welcome back once again to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. We appreciate your joining us. It is News and Research Week once again. We have some news to share about the European Track Championships um, and about the Leadville 100. Uh, We're also going to talk a little bit about some research. There's a treasure trove of data that was released by the IAAF uh, around about 39 different track events in last year's Track World Championships. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, And we're going to confront the question of whether you should be training fasted or unfasted, fueled or unfueled. Uh, We'll talk about some research and some advice related those things. Before we get started, though, let me remind you, if you want to drop me a line, it's george at itlcoaching.com, or if you want to drop Patrick a line, patrick at itlcoaching.com. You can also reach out to us at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get underway. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching Informants and Blue Pineapple Travel. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta. We appreciate your joining us. We appreciate your patience with uh, our version one and version two interview with uh, Tess Sobomi and Marshall that had to be released this past week. Um, but uh, but hopefully you got a chance to listen to that and uh, and you're fired up for some news and research this week. Uh, Patrick, did you you said you went to the big old group run, right? I did. So Tess does a great job. She puts on what they call the the big old group run, which uh, and we talked about an, that is an invite to a lot of folks here in the Atlanta area to come and just have a literally a exactly what it says a big group run for all the different groups in Atlanta like the Atlanta Track Club Atlanta Tri Club ITL etc and it was just a fantastic event she does a great job of kind of bringing people together and, and seeing all the different people in Atlanta that are runners right sometimes it's hard to or it's easy to forget I should say just how many runners there are in Atlanta because you only see the people that are running in in the same park you go to or the same uh, running group or the same running trails or maybe the runners around your neighborhood but it was really cool to see just how many people in Atlanta have a passion for this sport and take the time to drive to, you know, Pont City Market on a weeknight, which, as folks know who are residents of Atlanta, tends to have some traffic yeah. um, and does so out of really the love of the sport and love of, of the community. So fantastic event. Kudos to Tess on another great event. She always puts on a, a, a lot of uh, races and running activities that are a lot of fun. Right on. I, I like what you said about how there's so many runners out there and you forget how many runners there are because that's totally true. Right. And, and I think that that's one of the big takeaways kind of as I was listening to the interview with Tess multiple times in order to do the surgery on it. <laughs> but um, Thank you, by the way. I do appreciate it. When you volunteered, I'm not going to lie, I did not exactly... No, it worked out well. Help. It, it worked out well. Um, but uh, but one of the big takeaways from it was was about how her races she tries to reach out to as wide a swath as the Atlanta run, of of the Atlanta running community as she possibly can. Um, and so you go to that her races. You go to the Monday Night Brewing Ten Miler. You go to to the ATL Twenty K Relay, and there are people at those races that you're not going to see at other races. Yes. Um, and and I appreciate that about those races. I think that's cool. Um, you know, there, there's there's one group of people that you'll see at, at the Atlanta Track Club races, and there's another group of people that you'll see at, at, you know, other just sort of the local 5K. She tends to get a little bit broader cross-section, and specifically for me at least, she tends to get people to come to her races that I don't tend to see. 
Um, she has a more diverse cross section, and I mm-hmm. appreciate that. And I mean it a more diverse cross section in every way, in terms of the abilities of the runners and their goals in running. I mean racial diversity. Mm-hmm. I mean I mean socioeconomic diversity, ethnic diversity, all that sort of thing. Uh, I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So very cool. Um, so kudos to her. I, I think that's an important thing. Yeah. I mean, you and I have talked a lot about the the benefits of trying to extend or trying to extend the benefits of, of endurance sports to a wider array of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we talked about that a lot with like, uh, Brent and Kyle Pease, um, and, and, you know, walking with KPZ and their foundation, which is great, you know, extending it to people who, who can't necessarily cross the finish line on their own and need some, need some help to get across that finish line. Um, same thing. That's the reason why I like black girls run so much. And I mentioned yes. that in our, in our, in our interview with her is that, that it's, it's encouraging folks who, don't otherwise have a whole lot of models and a lot of encouragement to, to take part in in endurance sports and, and get some of the benefits of endurance sports that you and I have, have also experienced. So, yeah, very cool. Um, so keep up the good work, Tess. Um, what else is going on with you, man? Oh, not too much. Uh, just marching along towards the uh, Sacramento or CIM Marathon here in a couple months. Right on. So I've, I've enjoyed doing the last few long runs with you. It's good to have you back and Thanks, motoring Brian. around Kennesaw Mountain. <laughs> so. Very good. Yeah, and actually, it's it's uh you know we this morning we ran together and uh, the Chicago Marathon's now only a few weeks off. Really, I mean we're we're in the middle of August and that's in the beginning of October. So right. you're looking at what seven eight weeks away now, mm-hmm. um, six seven weeks away. Uh, I, I was talking to somebody who's doing the Pinhoti 100 this morning, um, and that's eleven or twelve weeks away. Uh, that's the same weekend as the New York City Marathon, eleven or twelve weeks away. Uh, that's the same weekend as the Rock and Roll Savannah Marathon and Half Marathon, which a bunch of people in the Atlanta area do. So eleven, twelve weeks away there, and so yeah, we're we're, we're starting to we're starting to turn the corner towards yeah. We're we're at that time where you have about about twelve weeks out or so. You need to you need to almost say to yourself, all right, for the next eight to ten weeks, mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to move up running as a real priority in my yeah. life, or just move it move it up one or two levels, so to speak. Obviously, we all make you know. We all make choices in life, and you know most folks who train for marathons tend to prioritize fitness more than the average human being, right? Yeah. Um, but this is the chance where you have to really make decisions. Like, all right, for the weekends, right. I'm not going to be ambitious with my personal goals. I'm going right. to really devote those to running, to the long run, getting rested, recovered, things of that nature. So, yeah, I sent out that email I think last week to a lot of my runners, saying, "All right, you've been training hard. However, now it's go time and time yeah. to kind of step it up." Yeah. Really- you know, and I always think about, and and I always think about the the twelve weeks out, the ten weeks out. Not only is is like a time when the running, the the training is going to get more specific for the race, but it's also the time when you start paying attention to things that you might have kind of let fall by the wayside. Correct. You know, you so you, you start eating better. Yeah. Um, you start paying more attention. You you, you set up regular massage therapy appointments, like things mm-hmm. like that. That that maybe you know during times when you weren't quite as serious, you eh, kind of blew off a little bit. Um, once you get within you know two to three months, you 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 really need to start nailing those things down and start paying closer attention to those things. Um, so yeah, we're we're kind of entering into that phase for a lot of people who have uh, fall marathons. They're doing Kona. They're doing Ironman Florida. They're doing Ironman Louisville. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ironman Chattanooga is only you know at the end of September. That's that's the closest of all the these events we're talking about. So yeah, that's right. That's um, only a few weeks away. Yeah, the Augusta seventy point three. All those things. So yeah, yeah. Um, so we're kind of getting into an exciting time of year here, um, very much. Um, we are also starting to get into to sort of championship season, I guess you could say. So the piece of news that I wanted to mention that that 
some of you might have seen has to do with somebody we've talked about a little bit on the uh, the podcast before, and that's a guy named Jacob Ingbertson. Uh, Jacob Ingbertson, seventeen years old, he's from Norway, okay. um, and he has two brothers, uh, Heinrich and Philip Ingbertson. Um, Which, just to give you an idea, so if he's seventeen years old. Y2K means nothing to him. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Like, think about that for a yeah. second. He's, he's a digital native, yeah. yeah. He's, he's not even millennial. He's iGen, um, they're, they're, they're starting to call really? it. Really? Okay. Yeah. Wow. yeah, well, you know, it has to kind of develop a little bit more, but that's that's what I've heard it called. But, yeah, he is he is never known, or he cannot remember a time when Facebook didn't exist, right? So, so, I mean, that's who we're talking about. Somebody who's, I mean, 17 years old, he was born in 2001. 2001. <laughs> you know? Wasn't there a movie 2001 so, about so, the future? Yeah, that came out in 1968. So, like to yeah. him, that movie is actually the past, nothing yeah, yeah. but the past. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, so so yeah, uh, Jacob Ingerson, 17 years old, uh, two brothers, Philip and Heinrich, and the three of them are the three fastest 1500 meter runners in Norwegian history. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I was to say, and, and there's a strong kind of history of, there's, of, of very good runners from that country too. Mm-hmm. That is not a and very good endurance statement. athletes, yeah. yeah. I mean, and even even if um, from cross country skiing to yeah, track. yeah. I mean, so so a lot of them end up in cross country skiing. Yeah, I mean, if and if you look at cross country skiing, I mean, the the it's literally like if you pile up all the medals ever won, and I'm I'm totally, I'm not completely talking out of my ass here, but 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 there's this comes from somewhere. I do it all the time. It's okay, George. <laughs> but 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 if if I'm not actually looking at the study and the sticks in front of me, but if you pile up the 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 number of medals that the rest of the world has won versus the number of medals that Norway has won in cross country skiing, they're roughly equal. I mean, you know, Norway is the powerhouse um in in cross country skiing. And that's I mean, that's that's distance running. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's 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 very much the same sort of physical skills that you need. Um, so anyway, but but they end up kind of following track instead, and they're now the top three, three brothers, top three uh, in Norwegian history. But anyway, the 17-year-old, the baby of the group, all three of them end up making the final in the, the European track championships this past weekend in the 1500. Uh, and Jacob Ingbertson, the 17-year-old, ends up winning the European championship in the 1500 meters. So we had talked about him. We talked about that Diamond League Meek in Mon- Monaco a couple of mm-hmm. weeks ago. And we said, oh, yeah, isn't it great that he did really, really well? He is now a European champion at age 17. What were you doing in your running career at age 17? <laughs> yeah, I know. I was in high school. <laughs> right? I, I, was, I was like, sweet, I finished top 10 at state. <laughs> right. Yeah. And this guy's going out and winning. I can wear my state ring to prom. Uh, yes. Um, if only I can find a prom date. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, this guy is going out and winning. Yeah, he's not going to have any problem finding a prom date. Um, he. Uh, he's going out and winning the European Championship. So, as if that's not enough, um, he's entered the next day in the 5,000 meters and comes back the next day and 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 runs 13:17 and finishes the last lap in 53 seconds to win the 5,000 meters as a 17 year old uh, in the European Championships. And European Championships are not the most prestigious meet. You know, I mean, it's it's not as if um, you know the very best runners in the entire planet are there. It's not the Olympics. It's not the World Championships. But it's not like, you know, a, a rec league meet. I mean, this is a guy, a 17-year-old goes out, and he's, he's crowned champion of Europe. <laughs> you know? I mean, in two events. Um, yeah, I mean, where does he go from here, man? <laughs> I don't know, but somebody, this story was so cool on so many levels. One, talk about a sibling rivalry. I mean, you have right? twin boys, so yeah. I'm sure you see it a little bit. Oh, yeah. But I could not imagine being the brother that like finished third in that race, or right. you know, you know, among that group. Yeah, no, I mean, all three brothers made the 1500 meter final, which is like pinnacle of a career for most people. 
and and you were your third brother. You were the third person in your family in the race. <laughs> Oops. I mean, that's just oh. brutal. Life oh. is unfair sometimes. Oh, yeah. Um, totally. But anyway, so, so yeah, hats off, Viking hats off to, uh, to, 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 <laughs> to Jacob Ingbertson, uh, uh, super impressed, uh, by, by him and, uh, look forward to seeing what he's going to do over the course of the remainder of his career. Really? He's, he's, he's still got a ways to go here. Um, uh, very good. I also wanted to mention, uh, the Leadville 100 mountain bike race was yesterday. Mm-hmm. You might've seen, um, Leadville 100 is, is, uh, both the ultra run and the ultra bike, the hundred, uh, the hundred mile run and the hundred mile bike uh takes place in leadville colorado it's at a at a pretty high elevation i think i mean it's like eleven thousand feet i mean super high um and uh uh it's kind of one of those um ultra endurance events that people outside of the ultra world know Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not necessarily people outside of the endurance world know, but people outside the ultra world certainly know. Um, and one of the reasons for that is there was a movie several years ago called Race Across the Sky that was about Lance Armstrong actually doing it after he had retired from road cycling. Um, and Lance Armstrong won it, and then he said that, that that stoked his competitive fire so much and he enjoyed it so much that that, that actually inspired his comeback um, to try and go for additional Tour de France uh, uh, wins. Take it even a step farther. Some people have said that, that if Lance Armstrong didn't try and come back, then USADA, the U.S. Anti-Doping Authority, would not have reopened their case against him or really looked into him and would not have ultimately nullified his seven Tour de France victories. But That's incredible. Hard to say. But anyway. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, that was yesterday. Um, uh, a few ITL athletes and uh, a couple of, of, of ITL folks and some, some part, members of the broader ITL family and some members of the Atlanta uh, distance endurance community uh, took part in that. So that was kind of fun to see and fun to follow. And congrats to everybody who, uh, who did that big race yesterday. Um, what else you got going on? Oh, uh, n- nothing too much. I mean, just to add to that, you know, one thing that's cool about that race and really about our sport in general, we've talked about this before and kind of touched on this a little bit in our discussion about tests is, you know, there's so many different avenues you can go to push yourself to new heights as an athlete yeah. and as an endurance athlete, right? Mm-hmm. It can be to run a faster 5k. It could be to run, you know, oh, I've done a 5k. Now I'm going to try a 10k. I've done a 10k. I'm going to try a 13, you know, or a half marathon. Um, so that's kind of my big takeaway with that race. Is it's it's really cool how we just have so many different ways yeah. we can find white space. I mean, you have been a serious runner for many, many years. Yet if someone were to say, oh, what are some things you haven't accomplished or you think you could accomplish? I'm sure you could list several things like, oh, I could do a 50-miler. I've never done one or something like that or a 50 For sure. And, that, and, that's, and that's been on my radar, actually. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's funny because um, – uh, you know, and this is something I've talked about on this podcast before, and something I very much believe that that it's really easy, I think, to kind of get locked into your routines. Like, oh, I run the Peachtree Road Race every year. I run the Publix Half Marathon every year. I run the Boston Marathon every year. I run, right? You know, whatever the 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 Thanksgiving gobble jog every year. You know, and and it's it, you can get real locked into kind of doing the same things year after year after year, and just kind of make that your routine. Um, and it's too bad because there are there are so many cool, cool events out there. Um, you know, I resolved at the beginning of 2017 that I wasn't going to run any races I had run before. Um, and I have kept that up. Um, and I like that. It's been fun. It's been interesting that, you know, kind of doing not only like little small local races that are sort of fun to see, you know, people I don't normally see at races, uh, but do a lot more trail races, a lot of weird distances, stuff like that. I've even started thinking about dabbling into, to completely different sports, but that's probably a conversation for some other time. Um, but uh, but yeah, there's so many cool things out there. I completely agree with you. Yeah, very good, very good. Um, what's your news? 
Oh, my news, uh, I guess, would be that... Uh, sorry, I'm scrolling up. Huh. Um, so the IAAF released a giant study, which was an in-depth um, biomechanical analysis of nearly everyone at the World Track and Field Championships um, from about a year ago or so. Mm-hmm. And they just released this huge study. And I mean, like the data they released was just pages and pages and pages mm-hmm. uh, of data. And it was, it was pretty cool to see... Um, you know, you and I both have a bit more of an academic or a scientific bent to how we kind of approach running and, uh, you know, as tests. So I kind of eloquently said, we do tend to be running nerds. Um, and so I found the study fascinating. And so, uh, you know, I just want to kind of go over a a few of the things that kind of stood out to us and, and, you know, we can talk a little bit about them, but yeah. So, so to, to, to talk about how nerdy you have to be to appreciate all this data, they had 49 cameras set up on the track and on the marathon course. 49 cameras, and, and they had detailed data on, on 39 different events. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, so, and, and, and they published all of it. Kudos for like just being like, here's the data. Take a look. You yeah. Um, and so, yeah, if you comb through all the data, you can find some pretty good. But it's 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 down to like, you know, the angle of the of the javelin release and, you know, the number of steps that high jumpers take before, you know, launching on their high jump. And and even like the angle of the high jumpers as they're going over the bar and things like that, you know, the, the amount, the, the number of inches per clearance that pole vaulters are getting over the pole. That's right. And uh, that was a little too much for me, especially like the high <laughs> jump. I'm like, I don't have a clue. Um, yeah, there, yeah. there is a limit to your running nerdness. <laughs> right. It's a little bit like, remember when you took math in like high school and, and, and college and you were, you were good at algebra, good at maybe algebra two, and then you hit like calculus two and you're like, okay, we right. are done. <laughs> right, right. You get to honors theoretical calculus. You're like, all right, you know what? That's about it. I went from a B plus two into a zero in <laughs> one fell swoop. And that like, we have just crossed the line. Right. Uh, but no. But, and- but, it, but it's cool because, okay, so you and I are, are, are runners and interested in like the running events and track, yeah. right? And so, so it, but there's data out there, not just for, for us, but there's also data out there for, for people who our throw coaches yeah. and, and, and jump coaches and sprint coaches and all that sort of thing. So it is, I mean, and again, the granular level of the data, like I'm not giving it proper justice. I mean, it's yeah, really and, impressive. So yeah. And two quick side thoughts on that one. So it's funny. Uh, my, my girlfriend was telling her mom recently, Oh, Patrick does a podcast about like running. And the mom was like, <laughs> what is there to say? Like what? Run. Yeah. Like, I don't, what, what are you talking about? Like, how can you possibly speak about this for very long? And that's true for any industry, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so I, my, my granddad, my mom's dad loves cars. Mm-hmm. He loves cars and he was very good at them mm-hmm. and he loved NASCAR. Mm-hmm. So if you, and, and I can tell you, if you don't know cars, like I know nothing about cars. Mm-hmm. I know to turn it on, hit the gas, hit the brakes. Mm-hmm. After that, I'm done. Right. Um, so if you go to an NASCAR race, you're like, well, they're just driving in circles. Mm-hmm. But when you listen to him talk about it, or like Dale Earnhardt or mm-hmm. Dale Earnhardt Jr. or, or Michael Walter, be like, they'll speak the entire race nonstop. Oh, this person's yeah. doing this. He's half an inch to the left. That's going to yeah. kill him later on. And it's like that for any industry. So it's kind mm-hmm. of fascinating. It's definitely that way like in cycling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you watch a bike race, you're like, oh, my God, they're out there for four hours. You know. I mean, I, I would watch a stage of the Tour de France. And then I'd watch the high, and then I'd read about it all day, and then I'd watch the rebroadcast that night when I already knew it was going to happen. And my wife would make fun of me about it, but I'm like, no, but no, it's interesting once you kind of get down into that granular detail. But I mean, but if, if but if you're at the top level, yeah, and you, and you're totally right that if if you oversimplify anything, it's just you know 
What, what, what is tennis? It's two people hitting a ball back and forth over a net. What is basketball? It's two groups of people running back and forth down the court, throwing right. a ball through a net. You know what I mean? Right. I they mean, always score every time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, so, so anytime, oh, you're just running. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, anytime you kind of take that, that, that three thirty five thousand feet view, it's going to look very simple and, and, and not much, but anyway, so yeah, kind of circling back around the, the, the level of granular detail. Well, I think you're probably going to get into that right now. So a, a little bit. And I just wanted to talk about some of the takeaways that we had. Um, and I, I see we, because a, I'm obviously not the only person who's looked at this. You're not the only person that's looked at this. I mean, this has been something running coaches have looked at and have posted on social media some of their takeaways so it's it's been really a part of a conversation for a couple of weeks with a lot of folks um so one of the big takeaways is that uh so of the 70 runners that were analyzed during the fourth lap of the men's marathon i'm kind of i'm backtracking here yeah so 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 the marathon had four laps it was a four loop course Correct. Yeah, and so so they and, and so they came by the cameras over and over and over again, and so they were actually able to compare the the data they collected in the first lap to the last lap, which is kind of cool. Correct. So anyway, keep going. And what they f- found was in the in the men's marathon, um, the top four finishers were all heel strikers during all four laps of the race. Okay, and they looked at the fourth laps specifically beyond just the top four finishers. And they found that 67% of them landed on their heels, while only about uh, 30% landed on their midfoot and 3% landed on their forefront. Now, someone may say, well, what does that mean? I don't really quite understand you know, why that's significant. The reason that's significant and kind of really struck a chord with a lot of folks in the running community is one of the main tenets of the kind of barefoot, minimal, minimalist running movement is that landing on your heel is bad for you. Right? That was kind of one of the basic assumptions to that, that movement. And it's true that studies of people who grew up in, in cultures without shoes, like, like in Kenya, um, they do tend to land on their forefront and midfoot when they run barefoot. But, you know, as you can see, a lot of the elite runners, even those who emerged from East Africa specifically, mm-hmm. when they were running in this race, were actually running on their, on their heel. So, yeah, the top four in that marathon... So, so that th- this is last year at the World Championship, as you said in London. The mm-hmm. top four finishers in that marathon, who you, you you just said were all four heel strikers. Correct. They were from Kenya, Ethiopia, Tanzania, and Great Britain. Mm-hmm. So, three of the four were from from East Africa, um, and they were heel strikers, not as they got tired, but literally from the start of the race to the finish, Correct. all four laps. Yeah. Correct. Um. So it, it just kind of it puts a chink in the armor kind of in, in that movement, so to speak, a little bit. Um, now, of course, there is kind of a problem of like, okay, well, you know, chicken or egg, right? Like, do heel strikers run faster or do you, you know, become faster and then become a heel striker? Um, this study obviously can't answer that question and it, it can't provide any definitive answers. Um, but the claim that kind of the best runners in the world always land on their toes mm-hmm. was kind of put to rest. Um, yeah. And yeah. it really kind of made people step back and say, hmm, maybe we need to rethink some of our assumptions here. Well, you know, and it's not just the barefoot and the minimalist movement that that, that owes to that. Like the pose running movement is, is very right. much around that yes. and that sort of thing. And I, I, I've told you this story before, and this, this still, even as I tell this story out loud, kind of blows my mind a little bit. But, you know, a few years ago, I was, I was undergoing um, certification with USA Triathlon, USAT. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you would imagine, you know, it's a, it's a two day seminar and you, you have some classroom time and, and you hear from master coaches about 
the best way to go about training athletes and different things that you might not be taken into consideration. And and as you would guess, they have two hours on swimming, two hours on on right. cycling, two hours on running. Um, and then they have a couple of other sessions as well about like how to bring it all together and training principles and psychology and things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, in general, it was very good. It was very worthwhile. But for the for the running segment, the, the, the coach said, okay, we spent enough time in the classroom. Let's actually go outside. Let's go to the park across the street. We were in Savannah. And, and he basically led us through a pose running clinic that was all about things that we need to be doing with our athletes and to encourage them to start landing more on their forefeet. Right. Um, and, and I was kind of and, – and, of course, you know, I wasn't going to be a resistant student. I wasn't going to be that guy. But, but at the same time, I was like, this is not – like this is not necessary. Like the, the research is not sound on this. Yes. Yeah. Th- this this is not this is not um, inside the running community. This is not something that's generally agreed upon. That that oh well no if you're striking on your forefoot then then you're going to be a better and more efficient runner. Um, not to mention it just goes against basic like uh, empirical like evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I, I well always, that's I mean that's what this is. It's empirical like, evidence showing that's not true. And, and so like the the. I mean, I think I've used this example before on the podcast, but I, I remember when I first heard that you need to drink 64 ounces of water. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the minimum you should drink. Right. I'm Eight like, glasses a day. 64 ounces? <laughs> Good. What am I, a fish? <laughs> and then they went, and like, who do you know that drinks 64 ounces of water every when, when, day? When like, you get like, flabbergasted, you sound like you're a, an 80-year-old man. Yeah. Well, I am, actually. <laughs> I, I, I am an old soul. You, you, you flip immediately into that? Yeah. 64 ounces? Ridiculous. Anyway. As I chug my giant Coca-Cola here. Anyway, after, and After your two-hour and 20-minute long. Yeah. yeah. Um. But the point is, sometimes when you hear a study, and you're like, that can't be right. Then, lo and behold, you do need 64 ounces of water. But you get, like, half of it just by eating, like, right. your usual food. And it's like, oh, right. so you drink, like, four glasses of water. Okay, right. that's completely right. different. Um, Side fact, did you know that prairie dogs get all of their fluids from food? They do not drink water. I have to say, I think you just changed my day with that uh, fun so, fact. Well, yeah. I mean, so, yeah. So when people come up to the track on Tuesday, nobody's going to be like, oh, that was a really interesting thing you shared about heel striking. They're going to be like, I didn't know that about Prairie Dog. <laughs> uh, but no, during, during the Lewis and Clark expedition way back in 1804, um, Lewis and Clark and the entire Corps of Discovery, they literally took every man, all 50 of them, and they, they captured a Prairie Dog and they sent it back to Thomas Jefferson at Monticello. Um, and the prairie dog continued to live at Monticello for the rest of its life. Um, but Thomas Jefferson would always try and give it water, and it never drank water. Because, really? Because prairie dogs don't drink water. Huh. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, keep going. But you and so we, you know, and, and, and to your point, too, when you talk about. My the, point about prairie dogs? No, well, yeah, you're one. <laughs> I guess the point we made three points ago. Um, that, you know, you can't. So I think one thing that's different, let, let me backtrack. I think I, I've noticed when I go to a lot of these coaching clinics. They a lot of folks approach coaching runners, endurance runners specifically, the same way they approach coaching baseball players. And what I mean by that is like those are much more like technique driven sports. And yeah. what I mean by that is a lot of it is like a lot of the coaching in like football, for example, is like when we call this play, you run exactly seven yards, you turn exactly this way, the ball's gonna hit you exactly right here, and you do you have your hands up here, so that way you're gonna be ready to catch and it's all very mechanical and you have there's a lot of decision making and muscle memory yeah um you know you know when you get the ball always throw the or like baseball always throw the ball to first base Mm -hmm. but in running you can't say all right you know 
20 miles in, I need you to pick up the pace. Mm -hmm. Like that's not put your feet in this place, right? Put your feet in this place. It just doesn't work that way. Um, your body is going to, for the most part, run as efficiently as it can. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of hardwired into your system mm-hmm. to run as efficiently as you can. The reason you're not usually is because there's some weak link involved. Mm-hmm. Um, or you're tired. Or you're um, tired, yeah. And, 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 that's, and that's what training does. And that's the reason why we always talk about like strides at the end of long runs. Is that, that, that what, you, what you're doing with, with your running is you're training yourself to, to continue to run efficiently and run well even when you're tired. Right. Um, so, so, yeah. I, you know, Steve Magnus, um, coach at the University of Houston, who also has a podcast, and, and um, he was an assistant coach at the Nike Oregon Project for a little while and was kind of actually a whistleblower with the Nike Oregon Project a little bit. But anyway. Yeah. He, um, I give um, him a lot of props for that, by the way. Yeah. I mean, he's an interesting guy. Um, but uh, he, uh, he wrote a piece that I remember reading about a year ago about what he saw as a division inside of running coaches. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, you have a lot of running coaches who very much kind of uh, – who grew up in, in a time or came of age as runners or running coaches before there was data. Yeah, that's um, a great point. And, and, and they're so much more about you need to run by feel and you need to do this. And I, and I count myself amongst those coaches at bottom. Yeah, I, I think that I do incorporate data and look at data, but at the same time, I think that, that if an athlete comes to me and says, you know what, this run was slower than it's supposed to be, but it was easy, and that's kind of what I need to do, I'm like, that's good, that's cool, that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm much more about feel. Um, and then there's these other coaches that have come along that have such a wealth of data um, and that always want to look at numbers and always want to crunch the numbers and always want to look at data. Um, and I think data can be helpful, but I think it's only helpful in terms of informing how you felt and vice versa. Right. You know what I mean? Um, and so, so, um, I think that that's kind of where this coach that, that was holding this, this clinic, this USAT clinic was kind of coming from that he had sort of looked at and read, okay, this is how you're supposed to run. You know, this is the formula, you know, X plus Y equals Z. Right. Um, and he was applying the formula and he was, and he was encouraging us to, apply the formula um but the 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 more you know running by feel and learning by doing and things like that um that those of us who grew up before the age of data um have and that belief that we have he just he's just not of that ilk yeah um and, and the second point i was actually going to make for, from kind of the lesson that we learned from this data okay actually, yeah so, so circling back to the data that yeah, was a pretty good digression is the that keep going. they found that fatigue changes your form Mm-hmm. Even the elite runners, their fatigue, their form broke down as the race went on. When you really kind of slow it down and you look at you know all the thirty, forty different angles that all the cameras captured and kind of could show you in slow motion, um, and that to me was pretty striking because you know we're kind of used to you know the the kind of the, the the more amateur coach saying, oh well you know we just need to get them to hold their form together, and if their mm-hmm. form would hold together, then they'd mm-hmm. run faster. Even the elites. Um, their form is breaking down in that fourth lap of the marathon. Mm-hmm. Or it's changing. Or it's changing, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, uh, to quote Steve Magnus, he said, you know, as athletes fatigue, they start to compensate and their weak links in the chain start to show. Mm-hmm. That is it, that is precisely how it, how it works. And, you know, once again, it's not like, oh, we became tired, so we were not as focused. And since we were not as focused... We didn't. We were not as mentally sharp, which you know mm-hmm. allows to make careless errors. No, it's your your body is, you know, is literally compensating for, for weak links. I mean, there's that too, though. <laughs> um, true, I, but, but I think my yeah. point is it's not the only answer. Yeah. Um, yeah. True. 
And so that was a, a and that was to me, as you kind of pointed out, data backing up what I what I felt like I already knew. Mm-hmm. You know, does that make sense? So yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna lie. I saw that and kind of ha- did a little bit of a Tiger Woods fist pump at my computer. Like, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, but that would to me was 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 another big takeaway. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and so I, I have a couple things. The first thing is to say that that. This is the reason why, if you're training for for long races, be they Ironmans and half Ironmans, be they be they marathons or half marathons, you need to you need to spend the time. Yes. You know, um, I I went to I went to CrossFit on Friday, first time I've ever been to CrossFit, and I'll probably keep on going. I'll probably keep on going on a couple strength days, one or two days. You yeah. know, you know, you just completed the first rule of CrossFit. What is that? I I told everybody. You told CrossFit. everybody you did yeah. CrossFit. Right, yeah. There you go. Right on. Yeah. How do you how do you know a CrossFitter? Uh, how do you know if somebody does CrossFit? They've told you. Yeah. Yeah. So people have said the same thing about triathletes. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, and if you read CrossFit Endurance, um, and you read the the book, which I you know I read it more than a year ago, um, and I heard people repeating to me when I was there on Tuesday, like or uh, Friday, the 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 gospel of, of CrossFit endurance is that you don't need to do the super long stuff that you need to do the short, hard stuff and hold your form together. And you do the really long stuff and your form's going to break down and it's going to be bad for you and all that yeah. sort of thing. Right. Um, and so there, there is, I, I think, I think it's important because there's a degree to which some form decay, some for change is, is inevitable in running and that's okay. Um, and you shouldn't freak out about that. Yeah. You know, um, and, and you should train for that and you should be prepared for that. Um, but, 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 but it's okay. Right. Um, there's another guy I know that, that, um, he was a really good triathlete, um, but he was a brilliant swimmer. He was an Olympic trials level swimmer. Um, and he did some triathlons here in Atlanta for a little while. Um, and then was a cyclist for a while. But I remember I, I traded some email with him one time about maybe five or six years ago. And he, he again, coming from a swimming background, he wrote to me and said, yeah, I, I running doesn't really, he said, I never can get a whole lot of mileage because, you know, once I get beyond like 10 miles, he said, my form just completely breaks down. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I'm like, okay, so, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and in his mind, if your form breaks down, that's when you stop. Cause that's what swimmers do. And, right. that, and, and that's, and that's, and that's it makes what swimmers, sense in swimming. Yeah, yeah, it does because it's so form dependent. Um, but, but there's some degree of form decay in running that's to, that, that not only is to be expected, but is inevitable as, as shown by, by these runners, including the, 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 the ones who finish at the front. Um, the other thing it makes me think of is it, it reminds me of one of my favorite studies over the course of the past 10 years. Um, and that was a study that was done. They, they, uh, did it, I think it was at East, yeah, it was at Eastern Michigan university. Um, and they put accelerometers on the feet of a bunch of different runners and they had them run on a treadmill to exhaustion. And what they were expecting to find is that as the runners got tired, they were going to, their, their, their feet and their legs were going to start moving in a wider direction. And so like literally as their form changed with fatigue, the, the entropy of their stride would go up, the randomness of their stride would go up. Right. And so their feet would start moving all over the place and their hips would like start rolling all over the place and their knees would start bending in and all that sort of thing. Right. Right. And they literally found the opposite. That that at the at the beginning your your legs go through a wider range of motion because you're kind of relaxed and that sort of thing. But as you get more and more fatigued, your your form becomes more robot like. Interesting. You get locked into a particular pattern, um, and and 
once I kind of thought about that, like you're saying, I had never thought about that. It was kind of blew my mind when I first read the study. But then I was like, okay, that, that actually kind of makes sense. Because when I think about like what I've done in races and stuff, or even like just on training runs, like imagine, imagine you know, you're, you're in a race and you're in the first mile and you're feeling pretty good and there's a curb, you'll hop over the curb, right? Or you'll hop over the speed bump, something like that. You get late in a marathon, you're not hopping over anything. Yeah. You know, and and it's and it's in part because of fatigue, but it's also because your stride is so locked in that that trying to change it to hop over that thing to adjust for that thing, it's just not happening. Yeah. Um. And so, yeah, I thought that was kind of fascinating. Um. And the 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 authors of the study actually went on to say that you could you could determine the point at which somebody was basically hitting maximum effort by looking at the randomness in their stride. And so once their randomness kind of bottomed out and it locked into a, a in, into a mechanical place, that's when they were at their ultimate. That's when they were at their limit, which yeah. I thought was sort of an interesting thing too. But that's not such a useful finding. But anyway, so it kind of makes me think of that as well. Um, anyway, so so yeah, what yeah, else? And 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 I would say to, to wrap up that second point, you know, uh, the other the other big thing too is it kind of points to just how much you can make some general conclusions. Mm-hmm. But people's form breaks down in different ways. Yeah. So it, it there there's a lot of individuality. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot to learn. Um, you know, but it, it's not the same as saying, oh, when I hit two hours, this happens. Oh, mm-hmm. that and that will happen with you too in terms of like form breaking down. The human body is a it, you know running really entails the entire body. I mean, mm-hmm. it really is a one you know um, kind of orchestrated uh, movement. Mm-hmm. So for individuals, they have different pain points, different kind of weak links in the chain so there, there is a lot of individualization there yeah and then and then third and finally um kind of the kind of final point is that um if i can if i can actually get to it sorry i'm scrolling down here um is that you know there there does tend to be some asymmetry that emerges you know when runners start to fatigue mm-hmm. and um i don't want to get too much into it because we've, we've already kind of spent a lot of time on this study specifically but it just kind of builds the case that we made in that second one, right? Mm-hmm. Even the elite runners, their strides, you know, uh, do tend to be a little less symmetrical kind of as the race went on. I think this study pointed out that generally it started a, a little after halfway after the – or excuse me, a little bit, a bit after the halfway point in the race. Yeah, and, 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 so, and, and to be clear on what that means, a symmetrical stride means that the, the, the length of your steps are the same. Correct. Thank and you. So, so yeah, and 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 so as your what what the study found is as people were starting to get tired, their stride became more asymmetrical, and so their uh, a stride with their left foot would be two inches longer than a stride with their right foot, whereas when they first started the race, they would be equal. Correct. Yeah. And then to kind of put a, a bit of a bow on all of this. I mean, we've talked about elites form breaking down as they fatigue. We've talked about their stride becoming more asymmetrical as they fatigue. Um, and all that is to say is, if you want to look to improve your own running, you know, a you don't have to be perfect. You know, I think I think one mistake a lot of people make is they they come to running and they think, and when you see that kind of slow down um, replay of yourself running on a treadmill, it can look pretty ghastly sometimes. <laughs> At least for me, it can. And then it can be discouraging. You start getting that sideways lean. Your neck starts going. Right. Oh, my before. gosh. How did I even make it from point A to point B? Don't focus on that. Seriously. Like, you know, you are pushing yourself very hard if you're running an endurance race. That's going to happen even among the elites. And then, you know, if you are looking to improve, instead of saying, all right, I want to make myself a heel striker or I want to make myself this, you know, 
really spend some time and take some kind of diligent notes and try to gather some baseline data for where you are and what's normal to you. Mm. And then maybe tr- see if you can make small changes. Yeah. But I would also caution against, once again, trying to uh, change your stride in any way via brute force. Yeah. It'd probably be something more about, okay, I've noticed this, which means I probably have tight hips, so maybe I can do these stretches right, or something like that. Or or something collapses, so I'd clearly have you know deep core issues, so I need to start going to a Pilates class or something Correct. like that. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. You know, it, it mentioned, and you know, one of the wrap-ups I was I was reading about um, was talking about that that asymmetrical stride, um, and it was talking about Almaya Zayana, and she was, she was the one who ran so fast, uh, set the world record, and and won the gold medal in Rio in 2016. Uh, she's an Ethiopian. Um, she had a stride asymmetry of 17 centimeters. One of her strides is 17 centimeters longer than the other. And so right. that's you know, roughly six inches. I mean, that's significant, right? Yeah. Um, half a foot and is longer than the other. And that and that's from the very start. Yeah. Um, you know, it's similar to an article about a year ago in um, in the New York Times where they talked about how, how Usain Bolt's stride is asymmetrical, right? Right, and so is that coach that did that? I hear USAT? he's a good runner, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. He I, turn out to be anything. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, he's he, he's on the rise, um, but uh, but you know that that USAT coach, that that guy who who did my clinic back in the day, if he were to look at Usain Bolt's stride, he'd be like, hey, you know what? We need to change that. Right. Let me let me put you through a couple of things. You know, Almaz Ayana. Oh, well, you know what? You've only run twenty nine thirty. Um, let's let's uh let, let's let's try and make that stride a little bit better. You know, right. let's. And, of course not. You know that, that that would literally slow them down, um, and and so yeah, um, the idea that there's this sort of perfect stride out there that we all need to be aspiring to get. I think if nothing else, the biggest the biggest single takeaway, if you look at the data as a whole, is that the idea that there's not a perfect stride. Right. I mean, there, there, there's some broad strokes, but there's not a perfect stride. And so if anybody tries to say, oh, you need to change the way that you run, because you're 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 trying to get to some sort of model of perfection. It's not necessarily going to be worthwhile. That's right. Yeah. All right. So, what's your new? Uh, what do you have for this? I week? guess we'll go, let's go to. Was that your news or your research, or is that both? I guess that was my news actually, because <laughs> your news was about some research. That's why. That's why I got a little confused there when I was transitioning to you. Right. Right. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Um, a couple other quick, quick pieces of news. I do want to give a couple shout outs here. Um, shout out to uh, Ashley Horner, who is sort of a a, a famous fit person on Instagram, if you want to call her that. Um, she has resolved to do 50 Ironmans in 50 days. Uh, the first one was, I think, yesterday or today in Haiti, and then she was going to do one in in each of the 48 contiguous United States and then do the last one in Haiti again. Um, we'll see how it goes. Um, she, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff she's posted and some of the, the, the articles I, I've read seem to suggest that she doesn't necessarily know what she's getting into. Yeah. Um, and, and she, she doesn't appreciate what a logistical challenge it is to say nothing of the physical challenge. Yeah. Um, and so she's actually never done a single Ironman. She's done a half Ironman and now she's going to be attempting to do 50 of them over the course of the next 50 days in 50 different locations. Um, she is raising money for some schools in, in Haiti. And so I appreciate her, uh, her, uh, her charitable, uh, efforts here, but um, but we'll have to see how it goes there. We'll kind of keep an eye on how it goes for her. But you know, kudos for that. Uh, this is not an unprecedented accomplishment. There was a guy named James Lawrence a couple years ago um, who was nicknamed the the Iron Cowboy, um, and he did fifty in fifty days in fifty states. He included Alaska and Hawaii in there. Um, and I remember at the outset, a lot of people, myself included, said, "You know what? Logistically, I don't think he's gonna be. I, I think logistics are gonna get him 
Yeah. You know, that that's what's going to stop him. I think physically he'll be okay, but I think logistics are going to get him. And he did it. Um, brilliant. I mean, fantastic. I, was, I mean, that's that's a it was a um, amazing accomplishment. Fifty Ironmans in fifty days in fifty different locations across the United States. It's incredible. Um, so that was two thousand fifteen. Um, so yeah. Um, similarly, I want to give a shout out to uh, a local runner, somebody that I keep telling Patrick I want to bring on the podcast, but for some reason I haven't actually mentioned this guy. A guy named Mike Anderson, um, yeah. who's a, a a masters runner and runs here for the Atlanta Track Club. Uh, Mike, this morning, Sunday morning, ticked over his 130,000th mile of running. Um, the guy has now run 130,000 lifeline, lifetime miles. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how many years would it take a car to get to 130,000 miles? Yeah, okay, so I get yeah, I don't know, a lot, a while. Like <sighs> five, six years? I don't know. My, my car is probably, I, I, my car is a 2010, hmm. uh, and we're in 2018, and it has about that number of miles. And I and I have a long commute. I was gonna say that's that's quick actually. Nine years is pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what that's with a pretty killer commute in the midst of Atlanta traffic and and a job that that requires me to go to work sites. Yep. Um. So yeah, no. Kudos to to Mike Anderson. That's just stunningly incredible. And and I I do want to get him on the podcast sometime soon. I don't think he's a listener. Um. But uh. But it would be fun to to, to get him on here and just say. Hey Mike, how the hell did you do that? Yeah, <laughs> you know, give me some tips. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you know what? The thing I appreciate about him too, and and when we get him on, I'm going to start saying as as a as an inevitability. When we get him on the podcast, we're going to talk about this. The dude still races five k's and ten k's. Yeah, he's not like, oh, well, I've gotten older, so I'm only going to do marathons and half marathons, ultra marathons, that sort of thing. He is dude still going out and running hard, like like going to the well mm-hmm. um, after 130,000 miles of running. Um, you know, he's he's in his in his 60s so uh anyway congrats to mike um he had a bunch of folks from the atlanta track club ran with him this morning down at the river and so that was pretty cool um very good all right so my uh my research and we, we this will be a little bit quicker i think we'll see um is pertinent because patrick literally did this today um but uh, it was about fasted training and fasted long runs um and um we had a listener that reached out to us about you know this particular thing, and you see a lot about um, training on an empty stomach and training when you're fasted. And specifically, a lot of times it comes up like in the mornings, um, and and people say, well, if you do a workout first thing in the morning, it's better to do it not having taken in any calories. And so the last time you ate was last night at dinner or maybe a little bit before you went to bed, and then you slept for a little while. And so by the time you do your workout, you're working on like eight hours, nine hours, 10 hours worth of fasting, right? Right. Um, and this kind of falls in line with, with sort of a larger movement inside of nutrition that some of y'all might be familiar with that um, there was a, a book that came out, I think it's called The 8-Hour Diet, um, that basically says that you need to eat everything that you're going to eat within eight hours, and then you have a 16-hour fast, and then you eat everything you're going to eat within eight hours, and then have a 16-hour fast. And that's intermittent fasting, that that's a good way to, to, to manage your weight. Um, and the the evolutionary rationale for that was that, hey, well, back in the day, you know, human beings got a big meal, and then they had to wait for a long time before they were able to get them because they might not have been able to... Mm-hmm. You know, you know, early Homo sapiens. We're talking about way back in the day, right? Right. Um, That's your grandparents, so, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but anyway, but that's kind of the, the the rationale. And then there was some research that some kind of inconclusive research that accompanied that said that it reduced inflammation and could increase longevity, longevity, and, and other things like that. So, anyway, um, for runners and for endurance athletes in general, um, there is. Um, 
sort of a lot of people, sort of a lot of people, there are a lot of people, there, 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 there are several people who swear by doing workouts in a fasted state. Um, they say that, that, that in order to get ready for long races, you need to, to go into a workout in a fasted state. Now, here's the, 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 the basic rationale. Here's the idea. You have primarily in your body two types of fuel. You have glycogen, you have fat. Glycogen is limited. It's kind of the jet fuel. And it's the stuff that, that, that really gives you that, that high-end energy. Correct. And so, But you only have about 2,000 calories worth of it in your, inside your body. Your liver stores just a little bit of it, and the rest of it is actually stored in your muscles. Now, And, and just to clarify to folks, mm-hmm. no matter how much you train, that gas tank only is as big as it is. Right. It, it's, it's, you can kind of work on the engine all you want, which is what we're doing when we're training, but that gas tank still only holds 18 gallons exactly. of glycogen or whatever. Exactly, yeah. Not 18 I, gallons, but you get my point. I was using the car metaphor. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I'm glad you said that because that's, that's important to keep in mind. Um, and so, so, yeah, there's a finite amount of glycogen that's in your body, and it's right. about two... It's about 2,000 calories worth. Um, now, also of note, I think, and this is a little bit of a side note, your brain runs only on glycogen. Correct. Um, and so um, because your liver can hide a little bit of glycogen, um, sometimes um, back in the day, you, your elementary school teacher, if people weren't able to concentrate, she'd say, hey, let's go outside to recess. And everybody would go outside and run around a little bit, and your liver might have been like prompted to release a little more glycogen, and you could come back inside and concentrate better. Right. That's why. Um now, of course, there's there's issues around recess and blah blah blah, but that's that's a story for another podcast. Um, but but anyway, um, and then of course you have fat. Um, now, fat is kind of like the diesel fuel that, that fuels the, the the real slow, low end stuff, not the high power brain stuff. Certainly not the high end running, not running at five k pace, not doing track repeats, not not you know the 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 high end trainer workout and that sort of thing. It's 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 the 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 slow steady slow burning fuel there um and we have pretty much an unlimited pretty much all of us have an unlimited amount of fat on our bodies right mm-hmm. um or at least an unlimited fuel amount um take for example somebody who weighs 150 pounds and is 10 percent fat which you know 10 percent body fat that's pretty good you know that's mm-hmm. less than most people um if they're 10 percent body fat they weigh 150 pounds that means they 15 pounds comes from fat right yeah. that means they have 15 pounds of fat on their body a pound of fat contains 3,400 calories. 3,400 calories times 15. I can't even do the math that fast. What would yeah. that be? It'd be 34,000, 51,000. Hey, I did do the math pretty fast. 51,000 calories. Yeah. Like 51,000 calories is about enough to run like like 25 marathons. Um, yeah. Uh, and so, so, so needless to say, um, yeah, that, 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 that's plenty of, of, of fuel fat on your body. And so the idea here is that if we could switch over the fuel source, if we could switch it from glycogen, which is limited, to fat, which is seemingly unlimited, we would be able to run farther and run better and all that sort of thing. And so is there a way to actually do that? Well, some people say the way to do that is by, by going into your runs hungry going mm-hmm. into your runs fasted. Um, and so that would do two things. Number one, because your glycogen stores would be lower and because your blood sugar stores would be lower, um, then then your body would be forced to rely upon fat. And that would spur fat use and it would turn your body more into a fat-burning machine, right? Um, and the other one is that your body will learn that because your glycogen is, is – it will learn not to rely upon your glycogen and therefore will spare it more. Right. And so, so it will use it more sparingly. Uh, and those, of course, are two sides of the same coin. So that's kind of the thinking. And, right. and I realized that was kind of a long 
description of, of the thinking there. Um, but but th- that's kind of like the, the philosophy and the physiology that underlies this whole idea. Um, do you have anything to add to that? So, yeah, several things, and, and I'll make it quick. But to kind of pull up a synopsis, you know, I certainly do it because what you're really doing is you're, you're training your body to burn its own fat stores, right? To do and to kind of burn your a burn your glycogen more efficiently, right? And to kind of use that glycogen more judiciously. Um, and you're also kind of training your body for that inflection point where it has to shift from burning sugar and glycogen to burning fat for fuel. So you're kind of navigating that shift. That's obviously an important part of marathon running and you know kind of taming these longer distances. Right so on. I can tell you what I usually do is, um, you know, I don't eat anything for breakfast. I, I sometimes don't eat anything for, for dinner or that afternoon before. And then, you know, I'll start the run. Now, I want to say a few things really quickly. And this, if you get nothing out of this, take, I, I want you to take this away. You should only be doing this if you are doing like two-hour runs routinely. And in my opinion, I should say, and are like doing the two-hour runs and then are like, Doing yard work a few hours later. Well, so so let's let's be specific on that. So, like so, what I mean so by you, that so is, you, you did it today, correct? And you ran two hours and twenty minutes a day. Mm-hmm. How many two hour, roughly two hour runs have you done over the course of the past three or four months? Like six or so. Yeah. Um, so, and that, so so t- and that so, so a two hour the, run has become fairly routine for you. And that doesn't point. include the like twelve or so I did in the spring leading up to the the Boston Marathon. Right. Um, and I and I say that to say this: a lot of times people come to us and say. Hey, great! I'm ready to. I want. I really want to crush this marathon, and they want to like jump to something like this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> let's let's walk before you can run. You know, let let let's kind of take. Let's let's have let's set small goals, accomplish those small goals, then grow to medium goals, etc. Mm-hmm. This is not something I think you should um, it's adopt. A little, bit, a little bit more of an icing on the cake thing. Correct. Um, and the other thing too is you always carry fuel with you. You do not say, all right, I'm going for a faster run. I am taking off by myself, running off into the woods. No one's going to see me. <laughs> like that is, I mean, seriously, that is a real safety hazard. So please be careful. Always have fuel with you and always do this run with people. Mm-hmm. Or at the very least do it at a park where there's water fountains nearby or there's, you know, maybe a police officer or security guard nearby. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I always, like I said, I always do. I usually start out about four months out uh, and then I do about once a month. And it's just kind of something I do because I do think it, it adds a little bit of, uh, you know, as, as you said, kind of icing on top of the cake, so to speak. Yeah, and, and we kind of got up in front of ourselves a little bit. I haven't even talked about the actual research yet, but but um, you know, two other things I would kind of add to what you just said. Number one, ain't nobody saying to not drink water. <laughs> oh, yes. That, I, I forgot to add that note. Yeah. Yes, drink water. Oh, and the yeah. other thing, too, uh, I have this in my note. Yeah, so so, so if even, even if you're doing a fasted long run and not taking in nutrition and, and going into it in a fasted state, you still need to be hydrated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, second thing, don't chug coffee. Chug coffee, you know, all that caffeine, it kind of increases the rate of the metabolism. Like, mm. now you're really kind of asking for trouble. So be careful with that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, this is more just something to, to, to know that it's out there. So mm-hmm. like I said, I usually start about four months out. I do once a month. And then you really... You can't do it within about six weeks of your race yeah. because it is risky because yeah. you can maybe really mess up yeah. and then not be able to run for four or five days. Right. And you don't want to do that when you're you know five, six weeks out because it's, now you're really missing some crucial runs on Tuesday and Thursday. All right. Yeah. And, and so one other thing I'll say about the actual practice of it, and then let's talk about the research, um, is that 
if you do decide to do one of these and, and you, you've checked all the boxes, don't expect to feel great on this run. Yeah, it, it's not a yeah. relaxing time. Yeah, it, and, and you're not supposed to. That, yeah. And that's kind of the point. And I'm going to circle back around to this point in just a couple of minutes here. But, but it, it, doesn't, it's not, it doesn't feel good. Um, and it's not really supposed to because, because you, you, are, you are specifically and purposely and intentionally underfueling for this run. And so it's not going to feel great. I dropped Patrick like a bad habit this morning. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't. <laughs> Thank but, you, uh, buddy. <laughs> I appreciate but, that. But, but, but don't, feel, don't feel like you're going you know, to go out there and just kill a run because, because you're – no, it's kind of the opposite actually. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's not a run in which you should be looking to really run your absolute best here. So anyway, um, there was a uh, – a, a, to get back to the research itself, there was a, an article in 2010 uh, in the Journal of Science and Medicine and Sport called Adaptations to Skeletal Muscle with Endurance Exercise Training in the Acutely Fed versus Overnight Fasted State. Um, and what they did that was is, written by an academic indeed yeah. uh, some folks in New Zealand um, and what they did is they took some cyclists because as we've talked about on multiple occasions whenever they want to do endurance studies they always end up using indoor cycling um, and they, they took some cyclists who completed exercise early in the morning without eating breakfast in their fasted state um, and they compared them to people who sort of ate a meal prior to, to doing that right uh, and what they found was the the fasted state cyclist increased their muscle glycogen stores by as much as 50% over the group that ate breakfast before their exercise. That's significant, right? Um, and so so it, it spurred the body to hang on to glycogen and therefore use it a little bit less. Um, and so there's some other studies that have made it clear that occasional fasting for exercise can improve glycogen storage and endurance performance. And so mm-hmm. so if you want to actually do one of these, um, yeah, there's some evidence there that, that, that it can be worthwhile and that it can boost some of your, your, your glycogen. Um, however, it's also important to mention, I'm not going to go into specific names of all these other studies, but there's a lot of follow-up studies show that there is a point of diminishing returns. Yeah. Um, and so if you kind of say, oh, well, well, fasting really helps boost glycogen stores, helps me hang on to glycogen, helps me burn fat more, I'm going to do it every day now. Oh. That, that's too much. Yeah. Um, um, and, and so there is a point of diminishing returns where over time that the, the, the stress that you're causing on yourself by under fueling your body is actually going to cause breakdown and actually make you slower rather than faster. And so kind of similar to what Patrick just said, the biggest takeaway is that, yeah, they can be worthwhile. They can, they, they, they are good to do occasionally, but only occasionally <laughs> and with certain safeguards in place and all those sorts of things that he just mentioned. Um, you don't want to be doing it every day. You definitely don't want to be doing it every day because it's going to cause you to underperform, um, and you only want to do them occasionally. Now, to circle back around to another point that you just made a second ago, you don't do it in the last four to six weeks. Mm-hmm. Now, you said you don't do it in the last four to six weeks because it's it's dangerous, right? And in, in, the, in the sense that you could fall apart, you could bonk, and that, that could completely wreck the remainder of your week during a time you're supposed to be at your, your peak training. Absolutely true, 100% correct. I completely agree with Patrick about that, and we talked about that this morning while we were running, as a matter of fact. Another thing to kind of keep in mind, the reason why you might want to do it, not want to do it four to six weeks out is because, as I said before, you're not going to run your best long run. You're going, right. to, you're, going to right. feel, you're going to feel pretty bad during this run. And in that last four to six weeks, for both physical and mental reasons, you want to be feeling good on your long runs. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to be running your long runs strongly and finishing well. Um, you might even be working You don't want in, some old man dropping you like a bad habit. Exactly. Uh, some guy who's now 44, uh, thanks to the birthday this week. But um, you might even be working in some marathon-specific things, some marathon pace miles, some surges, like we heard uh, 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 Nicole DiMercurio said was her favorite workout, right? You want to be doing you know, difficult 
long runs that 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 are very high quality. Right. These are not high quality runs. Yeah, that's a great point actually. And and so that. so they they do have a positive physiological effect on you, but they're not quality workouts. Mm-hmm. And in that last four to six weeks, you want to be doing quality workouts rather than these sort of just barely survive them. So so takeaway, yeah, do them occasionally, not every day. And then not in the last several weeks before your big target event when you're really looking to have very high-quality workouts instead. Last words, Patrick? uh, Or I would even say add on that probably don't do them. (laughs) But, um, yeah. And you and I said this morning that we we don't really recommend them usually for people. Oh, no. Heck no. Like like if, if an athlete comes to me and says, hey, I've read about this. I want to give it a try. I say, Sure. Do all these five things that you just talked about. Let's make sure we're doing all this other stuff. Let's make sure afterwards you're fueling and rehydrating really well. You know, don't plan to go to the Braves game afterwards or anything else like that, right? I mean, let's make right. sure you're doing it well. Um, but but I I I, know, I never put them on somebody's schedule. Right, right. And no, and honestly, another part is know what's going on in your life. Exactly, and that's the reason why I don't put it on anybody's schedule. Yeah, um, you know, you don't want to put it on your schedule for a Sunday when you have. You had to go to an important event that afternoon. Yeah. Or, or like, if if your kids were awake all night long and keeping you awake and so you didn't sleep all that well and you get up and you go out for your long run, oh, hey, now I'm going to do a fasted long run now. No, that's terrible. Their long run's already going to suck because because you didn't sleep any the night before. Yeah. So, you know? So think about it like this. One of the things we talk about all the time on this podcast is really consistency is like almost the one word that can sum up. All of our, what, 59, 60 episodes or whatever so far. Yeah. We want – everything we talk about – It's a golden rule of endurance Everything sports. we talk about is to make you a more consistent athlete, more consistent in your training. Mm-hmm. Um, so that – like the big reason we avoid injury is because injury makes you miss time. Now, you, you know, you lose out on the compounding effects. And so just be careful and just know that if you do do this – you do not want it in any way to get in, in the way of that golden rule of consistency. Absolutely, yeah. Do, doing one single fasted long run is not going to be the difference between you're running brilliantly on race day and not running brilliantly on race day unless it makes you miss four or five days of training and it might actually make it worse. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Good um, point. Yeah. So. All right, so I, I guess final words for me. Uh, so – you know, we're, we're wrapping up on time here, so I didn't get a, a, a chance to talk about uh, my research, um, which was going to be about how emotion, a, a piece of research that kind of tried to link emotional intelligence and race results. And all I've got to say is if you thought I was an old man earlier in this podcast, <laughs> you just wait because I am going to explode. All right. Little, when I, little, when I little, saw little this, teaser for next time. I mean, I think I went flying out of my house and started yelling at the sky. So There you go. So so tune, tune in in two weeks for our next news and research episode in which you get to hear an old man, specifically me, talking about uh, his views on, on emotional intelligence and an old soul, Patrick, uh, <laughs> Sounding like an old man. So we'll look forward to that next time. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Don't forget, if you want to send me an email, send it to george at itlcoaching.com. If you want to send Patrick an email, send it to patrick at itlcoaching.com. If you want to send us both an email, you can send it to those addresses, or you can send it to the podcast email, pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. 
you can also find the podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasant podcast, um, or on Twitter at pleasant podcast. If you want to check out ITL coaching and performance, go to itlcoaching.com, follow them on Twitter at ITL coaching or on Facebook, facebook.com slash ITL coaching and performance. And finally, for all your travel needs, don't forget about Blue Pineapple Travel. Find Blue Pineapple Travel at bluepineappletravel.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, or on Instagram, instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We appreciate your listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.